Hey everyone, it's Oni here. Uh, we are in part five of our sermon series that we've titled Zoom In, where we're looking at the mission of the church. Now, uh, today I want us to color a little bit outside of the lines. And what I mean by this is uh, over the weeks we've used Luke chapter 4 verses 18 to 19 as our anchor text. It's been the place that we've launched from uh, every time we unpack more of who God is and what he has called us to do as the church. Now, today I want us to read a little bit further in Luke chapter 4. But but let me uh, read uh, verses 18 to 19 just by way of recap so we know where we are. This is Jesus reading from the scrolls of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I want us to see the response to Jesus' announcement. Jesus is announcing here through these verses that he is the savior of the world, that in him arriving, this is the, the year of the Lord's favor. And while the day of God's vengeance is still to come, it is not now. And so how, how did the people respond? How did they respond to the good news of Jesus, to the message uh, that says that love and ho- hope, joy can only be truly found in Jesus Christ? What was the implication of them hearing? The kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe. Put your trust in Jesus. How, how did they respond? Well, spoiler alert. It was not good. It was not good. Let's read from verse 20. This is directly after Jesus has read from the scroll of Isaiah. It says, He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Carpenium, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now at first glance, this seems random. Why would Jesus say this? Well, he's questioning their amazement of him. He's putting their faith to the test. Jesus said exactly what the religious worshippers, the good people of Nazareth, were thinking. If he is claiming to be who he says he is and quoting from the prophets, then Jesus, why don't you do some tricks for us? Surely uh, this is not too much to ask of a real prophet who's claiming to be the Messiah. I mean, good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release the captives, set free the oppressed. Get out of here. Uh, Who does he think he is? 
That's what they were thinking. The reality is, they already had enough evidence to believe in him. They're asking for miracles. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, you, you're going to do this. You're going to ask me for miracles. You don't believe what I'm saying. But they already have objective evidence. What Jesus was referring to, the miracles in Carpanium, Jesus had already done this. All of Galilee was talking about what had happened. Their difficulty in accepting him did not come from the lack of objective evidence. And instead of going back and forth with them, Jesus doesn't. He doesn't enter into a debate. See, many of us, that's what we tend to do. We, we go, well, man, I really am. No, you're not. I really am. Prove it to us. No, I really don't want to. He doesn't do that. He goes straight to the heart of the issue, which was their spiritual self sufficiency, their ignorance, their arrogance and pride. Uh, to make his point, Jesus quotes two well-known Old Testament examples. One in 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 7 to 16, uh, with Elijah and a widow in Sidon. And then the other is in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, where we see Elisha and a Cyrene man. Now, I wish I had time to unpack these Old Testament scriptures because they are remarkable events. But for the sake of time, let me just tell you that Jesus quoted these passages to reveal to his audience their lack of faith. He's saying, all you want is miracles instead of simply recognizing your desperate need for a savior. And, and realizing that salvation is only found in God. He was basically saying, you think you know, but you actually don't. You see, with these uh, two illustrations from the Old Testament, Jesus is cutting right through their comfortable religious fronting and pretense. And so what was their response to this? Well, uh, they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. We see this in verses 28 to 30. But because of divine protection, hashtag the spirit of the Lord is on me. And also because it wasn't yet his time to die. That was to come later. Be because of that, Jesus escaped the angry crowd. Now, we, friends, we must not forget that the sinful mind is hostile to God. Romans 8 verse 7. And hostility comes in many shapes and forms. See, Jesus was bringing to the surface what was lying deep in their hearts. And that was unbelief. It was unbelief. And as he exposed that, they became angry towards him. Now, you might be listening to this and going, well, Ane, why are you telling us this? What does this have to do with the mission of the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Because before we go into some practicalities of what a missional lifestyle looks like, remembering that those who are called are also sent, that for those who are in Christ, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the mission of the church, of which we are a local expression of that universal body, the mission of the church is to put on display the wonder of God where we live, work, and play. Now we're going to get into some of the practicalities of what that looks like, but before we do that, I want to spend some time talking about some of the challenges that we will face by seeking to be faithful in the mission that God has given us. And, and this will stem from how we respond to Jesus and his message. It'll stem from how we respond to the good news of the gospel and its implications. And so to do that, I'm going to take us back to the time when Jesus walked the earth. We're going to look at that particular context and culture. And we're going to, we're going to look at how uh, some individuals, some groups of people, how they responded to Jesus and his message. Now, back in Jesus' day, there uh, were various groups of people, quite a few, and each group had a set of beliefs and customs. I, I wish uh, we had time to talk about them because they are all very interesting. But for where I want us to go in this sermon, for this series, I'm going to point our attention to four main groups of people. Now, depending on how familiar you are with the Bible and biblical history, you might know some of these folks, four groups. And remember, remember, we're looking at, and, and we're doing this very briefly, right? So we're looking at who they are, who they were, what they believed about God, and how they responded to Jesus's message. And before I forget, uh, this is also important, that all four of these groups were Jewish, right? So this is really important that you know this. All four of these groups were Jewish, and so therefore they would have considered themselves as the people of God. They would have seen themselves as the people of God. Now I want you to keep that close because we're going to need it a little bit later. Four groups. Group number one, the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the largest of the Jewish camps. They observed Jewish sacraments and studied the Torah. The Torah The Torah uh, is the first five books of the Old Testament. They were known as the five books of Moses. Now, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they studied the Torah, but they also followed the oral law. Uh, they would often try to adapt uh, the, the law and find various ways, depending on the time and the season, of, of how can we follow what God has called us to do. And so they'd come up with all these rules and regulations. An important thing to know about the Pharisees is that they regarded God as an all-wise, all-knowing, all-just, and all-merciful spiritual being. They also believed that humanity had the ability to make their own decisions and was held fully accountable for them in this life and the next. 
The Pharisees had, at this point when Jesus was walking the earth, had become uh, scholars of the law. and They had made the synagogue a place of study and worship and prayer. And as the rabbis interpreted the commands, they would come up with new systems and, and guardrails that were created to help the people remain obedient to the scriptures. Some Pharisees would find ways to bend the laws to their own ideologies and ways of life. And so while Jesus would publicly criticize the Pharisees, he did not condemn their beliefs, but rather condemned their hypocritical manner of living that violated the very ideals that they taught. Let me read a little bit from Matthew chapter 20. I'll read the first five verses. Listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. We know quite a few Pharisees, well-known Pharisees in the scriptures. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We see that in John chapter 3. Paul the Apostle was a Pharisee before surrendering his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So group number one, the Pharisees. Group number two, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the upper class group of the Jewish community. They considered uh, themselves a priestly group. Uh, They were influential in the temple and the Sanhedrin which simply means the council, a kind of like a a, a council in a court. And so when you hear the word Sanhedrin, you might remember the council that unlawfully examined Jesus and then decided to hand him over to the Roman authorities for execution. It's those guys, the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees got their name from the high priest Zadok, since the sons of Zadok were the worthiest to minister to the Lord in the temple. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 46. The Sadducees were not only wealthy by being the upper class group of the Jewish community, but they were also politically connected. Uh, They considered themselves as the conservative priestly group. They held to older doctrines and always opposed the Pharisees, both politically and religiously. Although both groups believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pharisees, they accepted the oral law, while the Sadducees refused to accept anything that was not written in the Torah. Some of the really strict Sadducees uh, questioned the existence of the Spirit and the concept of punishments and rewards in uh, life after death, denying the doctrine of physical resurrection. And so you can imagine uh, the thing that was very important to them was the here and now. Uh, The Sadducees have been historically represented as worldly 
minded nobles who were primarily interested in maintaining their own privileged position. Both John the Baptist and Jesus strongly criticized the Sadducees. And they were also very unpopular, the Sadducees. They were very unpopular with the common everyday people because of how they would keep at arm's length from society because they were, considered themselves more important than those people. So those are the Sadducees. Group number three, the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were a group of Jewish nationalists who strongly opposed the Roman Empire. Uh, the Zealot movement believed in theocracy, uh, which simply means uh, a form of government that is led by God or by an individual or a group of people who claim to rule by divine authority. Theocracy. They would say that Jews should not pay honor to Rome, nor acknowledge the emperor as their master. You see, the Zealots were like a guerrilla resistance against the Romans. They were known for carrying small knives. So when the opportunity presented itself, maybe in a small uh, corner or alley, uh, they would find a Roman soldier, push him in, attack and kill. We know that one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, was a zealot. Luke chapter 6, verse 15. And this would have made really interesting campfire conversations. I, I can only imagine on the one end, you've got Simon the zealot who absolutely hates anything that has to do with Rome. And then right next to him is Matthew the tax collector, a Jewish man, who was collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. Jesus really knows how to pick them. We see in the scriptures that Jesus was later associated with zealot activities at his Roman trial when his fate was linked to that of a man called Barabbas. And Barabbas had led a recent rebellion against the Romans. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 7. Uh, this is when uh, they say to the people, okay, listen, uh, you have to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. See, the Roman authorities were like, they're both the same. So now you have to pick which zealot you want to see free. Now, Jesus was a revolutionary. I, I want to make the connection here. Jesus was a revolutionary, but not like Barabbas, who believed, this is what Barabbas believed, and many of the zealots at that time, they believed um, that, they, that they were called to fight, fight for God so that God can rule. Whereas Jesus the revolutionary was like, no, 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 I'm going to die because I am God and I am Ruling. What a, what a revolutionary, what a way of thinking. But again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, now the final group, the Essenes. The Essenes. Now this Jewish group to most will be unknown, and that's because they're not mentioned in the New Testament. We know about the Essenes because of the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, 
whose work uh, has been crucial in, in helping us understand uh, the culture and the context uh, in Roman Palestine, first century AD. We know, we've been told, uh, that doctrinally the Essenes, uh, with their own beliefs, probably stood somewhere between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Like the Sadducees, they arrogantly claimed to be the true priests of God and the true descendants of Zadok. And like the Pharisees, they called themselves the holy and pure ones. The Essenes believed in the immortality of the soul, but rejected the idea of a physical bodily resurrection. One clear defining thing about them, separating uh, them from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is that the Essenes, lots of C's here, but the Essenes regarded religious ceremonies in the synagogues and temple as corrupt because they believed that the high priest of the Jerusalem temple was elected uh, falsely. Therefore, anything that happened from the temple was regarded evil. And so what was their response to all of this? They simply withdrew. They withdrew from the world. They withdrew from society. They withdrew from everyday culture. And they went to the desert, to the wilderness of Judea. And there they remained in organized communities and brotherhoods. And they fanatically studied the word of God, the Essenes. And there we have it, friends. We have the four groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Great history lesson on it. Why is this important? Well, remember, I, I told you to hold on to a nugget that tells us that all four of these groups were Jewish. And therefore, that means that they would have considered themselves as the people of God. And yet, we see they struggled with Jesus and they struggled with his message. And if you are struggling with Jesus, him being the Messiah, if you are struggling with his message, the one that calls us to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near, then the mission of Jesus given to his people is going to be extremely difficult. I believe it's safe to say that all four groups struggled to put on display the kingdom of God because their understanding of who Jesus was was so warped. They were so entangled in their spiritual sufficiency or self-sufficiency, their ignorance, their arrogance and their pride that they completely missed Jesus. But they thought that they knew it all. They thought that they were being obedient to God. They thought that they were on point. Now friends, what we've just gone through might have been plus minus 2,000 years ago. But I believe that today is no different. Today, the people of God are called the church. The church is the body of Christ, made up of men and women, young and old. Made up of 
those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But could you, could we, could we be in in danger of spiritual self-sufficiency, ignorance, arrogance, and pride? I believe we could. And I believe that this will affect how we see God, how we relate to Jesus, how we understand the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of this will shape how we understand what it means to be a child of God or collectively the children of God. If we fail to see Jesus for who he is, if we fail to understand the message that he brought, then this will warp our mission. In fact, it will leave our mission somewhat lacking and ineffective. Maybe another way to say it is how we put Jesus on display will oftentimes reveal how we relate to him personally or how we understand our identity in him. Let me say that again. How we put Jesus on display will oftentimes reveal how we relate to him personally or how we understand our identity in him. Let, let, me, let me explain. I'm going to walk through those four groups of Jewish people, but I'm going to bring it to our time today. So, so watch this. The Pharisees, and I'm going to define it in one sentence. And here I just want to give a shout out to Reino Mayer, one of our church planting residents who helped me shape these one-liners for these four groups. And so the Pharisees, right, defined in one sentence, they were the Everything is broken because we have not kept the law. So, therefore, we should keep the law. People. That's who they were. They, were the, they saw that meant everything is just, it's, it's broken. It, it, it's, not, it's not functioning the way that it should. And this is all because we have not kept the law. And so their conclusion was that we must keep the law. How do we, how do we fix all of this? Keep the law. Well, then the next question should be, well, how, how do we keep the law? Because it seems like we're struggling. So how do we keep the law? The Pharisees' response is we work harder. We work harder. We pull up our socks and we work harder. Now, friends, I say this often, and I'm going to say it again. This never ends well. This never ends well. Either you become a liar and a hypocrite. And what I mean by that is that uh, you, you, in the public sphere, you put on this face of I am obedient and faithful all the time. That I have everything together. But in reality, you live in a state of private sin and disobedience. And for, for, for some of us who are pharisaical in our ways, we pick up on this. And so what we do is then we create these standards that are always just high enough for us to get over, but not for anyone else. And then we present that to the people and say, this is what it looks like to be 
obedient and faithful to God. This is why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. Because he could see through the aesthetics. He could see through the pretending. We must work harder. If we don't become liars and hypocrites, then every time we fail, we end up in this pool of guilt and shame. Because we come to the conclusion that we will never be good enough. We will never be good enough. And friends, not, not only does this go against the gospel, but, but it does not put on display the true kingdom of God. If, as hypocrites, I mean, the world looks at us and goes, well, I don't want to be like that. But on the other side, they're going, well, Christianity is not for me because it, it seems like all it does is it beats people and leaves them in a dark corner where they're going, I'm not good enough. The gospel speaks into both these pharisaical situations. Yes, on my own, I cannot meet God's standard. That's correct. And yes, I fall short of the glory of God. But friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to live the life that you and I could not live. And then died the death that you and I deserve. And so when we put our trust in him, his grace covers us. It covers you. It covers me. This is what I like to call grace, grace. If there's grace for me, then there's grace for you. And so we invite people to this grace, recognizing who we are, no longer pretending and saying, I want to point you to someone who knows everything about me and yet still died for me. But maybe you have Sadducee tendencies. You see, their one-liner would have been, we have made a life for ourselves, so let's not throw it away. Let's not throw it away. Uh, Jesus saying things like, hey, hey, do you want to be reconciled to the Father? Do you want to please Him? Do you want to know Him? Then you have to deny yourself. Uh, give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. They probably would have gone, this Jesus guy is asking way too much of us. Uh, this Jesus guy seems like he wants to come and rock the boat. He wants to mess with our comfortable lives. You see, the Sadducees, they treated God like a part-time lover. Uh, today, it would have been God on Sunday and then leave me alone the rest of the week. To them, God's only responsibility is to sign a contract that we draw up and then for God to provide for everything that is on the contract. And when we live long enough in this delusion, it becomes so easy to believe in a God of our own imagination instead of a God of biblical revelation. See, friends, when we have Sadducee tendencies... We tell people, come to God. He is super chilled. Because you can bring your other gods with you. He won't mind. They put on display a Jesus plus whatever else you want. Hey, it's all welcome. 
And I want to let you know today that Jesus plus anything is just really bad kingdom mathematics. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so when we think that in terms of our identity in Christ, what we put on display is that very thing. And we don't want to lead people to a false gospel where they're holding on to something, believing that one day they will be with the Father throughout eternity, experiencing the fullness of Him. But then get there and hear the words, depart from me, I don't know who you are. The Zealots, their one-liner would be, we are going to take the law into our own hands. Now, what does this say about how they view God? Well, they're saying that God needs some help. He's struggling and he needs some help. Can you see all, all the chaos that's happening? It's because God needs us. They See, the, the zealots have moved from being ambassadors of the kingdom of God to now seeing themselves as the warriors of the kingdom. And, and the enemy is no longer sin, Satan, and death. But the enemy is now Rome and, and all the oppressors. Now, now, I'm not saying that we sit back as Christians and just watch physical injustice happen. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we need to wrestle to understand what godly justice looks like. And... Let me, let me give you just a little bit. We're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks, but let me just give you a little bit. Godly justice oftentimes looks upside down to what we are trying to do. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to move in us. Because without him, we would look at what Jesus says and go, nah, I don't think that's going to work. That's not going to fly for us. I mean, imagine the zealots standing before Jesus and hearing him say, Matthew 5, I'm going to read from verse 38. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm sure the zealots would have cried, yes, this is the man we must follow. Jesus probably would have responded, no, hold on, I'm not finished. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. The zealots probably would have leaned in and gone, did I hear him correctly? If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier, and here Jesus is referring to a Roman soldier because that's who was ruling at the time, and so if a Soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Zealots would have just simply gone, nah fam, this is not for me. Uh, exit, stage left. But Jesus goes on. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Hear this. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. 
Do, 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 you see, do you see the identity there that, that, that then speaks into our mission? Let me work this in reverse. Do you want to act like true children of your Father in heaven? Well, then Jesus says, then pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Like it, it just, it goes on and on and on. Like, like Jesus is coming in and saying, guys, the way you think, that's not how the kingdom of God works. Don't confuse being zealous for God with being a zealot. There is a difference. That if this is you, stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop operating for, for victory. But rather begin to operate from a place of victory. And it's not your victory. It's Jesus' victory. It's Jesus' victory. So stop fighting. Now, before I get the emails, before, I know I'm going to get them. I know that we are called to defend the doctrine. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We are definitely called to defend the doctrine. Churches are meant to appoint elders, and, and part of their responsibility is to defend the doctrine. But make sure that as you do that, you're pointing people to Jesus as well. Yes, we're called to speak truth, but to do so in love. Not just to win an argument. One of the most loving things that we can do as the church is to share a clear gospel. It's one of the most loving things that we can do. And so, yes, we defend the doctrine, but in that we say, hey, hey, I just don't want to win for winning's sake. I want to win so that you might see Jesus for who he is, that his message is one of hope. It's one of love, that he wants you to experience joy. We should look different to some of the engagements that happen over social media. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like the church is no different. That we've put on boxing gloves and we've entered the ring. And now we just want to show the world, look how amazing we are when we should be putting on display the wonder of God. God doesn't need you to defend him. He calls you to glorify him. But maybe, maybe you're a little bit like the Essenes. Here's their one-liner. All of you are evil, they would say. All of you are sinful. So we're out. We're going to live in the desert as God's holy and pure people. These guys simply checked out. They looked at the chaos and the brokenness of the world and they were just like, mm, not for us, we're out. They labeled themselves as perfect and said that this, all of this that's happening here is none of my business. It's got nothing to do with me because I am part of God's holy and pure people. I am perfect and I cannot be around this mess. They acted as if folks were beyond forgiveness, that the day of God's vengeance had come. When in reality, we are still in the season of the Lord's favor. Why? Because repentance is still possible. How can we be salt and light to a desperate world who needs Jesus when we are in the desert in our comfortable, holy huddles? Remember, Jesus left heaven, stepped into the messiness of your life, 
and saved you from destruction. Therefore, we as the church, we step into the messiness to share the good news of Jesus. We step into the chaos. We step into the brokenness to point people to the one who comes to renew and restore. Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17. I mean, I can only, I can only imagine the Essenes listening to Jesus pray, right? So maybe they happened to come in to town that day. Maybe they ran out of food supplies. I don't know. I've never lived in the desert. But, but they come across Jesus and they find him praying and they hear these words. This is Jesus praying in John 17. Now I am coming to you, right? This is Jesus saying, I'm coming to you, the Father, right? He's on his way to the cross. He says, I told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. The Essenes would have gone, you're right. You're right. This world is disgusting. We don't belong to this world. They hate us, and that's why we've checked out. But then Jesus would go, hold on. I'm not finished. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. That would have made a very awkward moment. But to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Then, right? So, so, so Jesus is praying that the Father would do this in the church, in the people of God. Why? Why, why make them holy by your truth? Why teach them your word, which is truth, so that just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Jesus is praying this way because he knows that society is broken. He knows that the the world is full of sin, that it's operating in a way that it was never meant to operate. He knows this. And so should we. And so we need to press in to Jesus. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to take over. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us. We have to trust the gospel so that we might engage so that we might seek the, the, the welfare of our cities and beyond. That we are ambassadors. We saw this last week. We are ambassadors here to put on display the wonder of God. And it's very impossible to do that when we've decided to check out. Because we've told ourselves that we are not like them. We could never be like them. They're disgusting. Look at us. We're the perfect ones. No. The only difference is we've been saved by grace. And what captures us will compel us. And if we've been captured by the gospel, then we'll be compelled by the love of Christ to go to them and say, Hey, you're just like me. Just like me. I was where you are now. I want to share Jesus with you. I want to tell you that you are loved more than you could ever imagine because Jesus died for you. That all you are to do is to turn from whatever it is that you are pursuing, whatever you are hoping will give you life, and turn to Jesus because he can only, he's the only one that can give you life. Which one are you? You, you might be a, a few of those. I, I, I found myself going... 
you know, there are moments where I'm a little pharisaical. There's moments where I have Sadducee tendencies. There's definitely moments where I feel like I'm a zealot. Knife in hand. There's moments where I just want to check out. But friends, how we put God on display oftentimes reveals our understanding of what our relationship looks like with God. That oftentimes we can be our own challenge as we seek to be on mission. Now, I could say so much more on this. I could flesh out some practicalities on this, but we're going to dedicate two Sundays to chat more about this. We're going to talk about, about what does it look like to be, to be on mission? What do our daily rhythms, what could they look like as we seek to share Jesus where we live, work, and play? What does it mean to be missional? And for that to flow out of our understanding that we are the children of God Saved by grace and grace alone. Now before I close, I actually want to read a portion of scripture. I want to read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read it and, and it's going to serve us uh, as a prayer. Because it, it reminds us as, as the church, if you're a Christian, I want you to be reminded of who you were before you came to Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life. When you sit in that, when you're blown away by that, when you're overwhelmed by that, it will propel you into mission. But if you're not a Christian, you're hearing this and you're going, I've never heard any of these things. I'm running after all these different things and they just, they don't seem to work. I want you to hear these words and receive them as an invitation. That Jesus is inviting you. He's calling you to himself and saying that all you have to do is say yes to him. And your life will change. Your life will change. And so let me close out our time by reading from Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedience. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, oh, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift not from works, so that no one can boast. And then hear this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us 
to do. Much of our good works is putting on display the beauty and the wonder of God. And so my hope is that we would be that as the church. Father, thank you for your word that is true. Open up our hearts. Make us obedient to that which you have called us. Help us, Holy Spirit. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.